0: I was like, Hillary, this is it. You're falling. You're dying. Like, you need to brace yourself for impact and just try to relax. Like, this is happening. And that was kind of on repeat every time I kind of made impact with the ridgeline, which I fell off of. And in total, I fell 150 feet and somehow survived. (laughs)
1: 6 of Hurdle. What is up? Emily Abadi here, new hurdlers, veteran hurdlers, all welcome. Before I gush with excitement about a new season with new opportunities, let me reintroduce you to the beauty that is Hurdle. Hurdle is a wellness-focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about big wins, tough moments, and everything in between. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes and CEOs to aspiring entrepreneurs on what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self, move with intention, and have some fun along the way. Honestly, at the start of every season, I take some time to just sit down and reflect on where I've been, where, where we've been, (laughs) 329 episodes of Hurdle later. This thing is nothing like I imagined. It is so much more. I am so appreciative, so grateful for this audience, appreciative of the conversations that result from the interviews that I bring to this feed. And as I keep rolling, I would love to know if there is someone or something that you want to hear about on the show. So feel free to shoot us a message with your requests over to hello at hurdle.us to kick off season six i am bringing you hillary allen she is an endurance athlete an ultra runner coach host of the train right podcast and new author of a book called out and back it was the biggest no-brainer for me to kick off season six with hillary because her story is unreal in 2017 she faced a near- fatal hurdle moment which we're going to unpack today during a sky race in Norway which is essentially think of it like a run that involves massive vertical gain and direct ascents over super steep technical terrain Hillary slipped and fell from a ridge cue a 50 foot free fall followed by a nasty tumble of more than 100 feet down jagged rocks in today's episode she talks to us about how she got there born in colorado and falling in love with the outdoors from a young age and then trail running while working on her master's degree ultimately becoming one of the best mountain ultra runners in the world before this accident she talks us through the details of that day bracing for impact and ending up in hospital with 14 broken bones lucky to be alive she gets honest about the road to recovery, which was more than just physical, admitting that there were times in the months that followed where she didn't want to live. The story, again, it's remarkable, and I am happy that Hillary is here to bring it to us today. Before we get into it, I do want to thank my longtime sponsor, friend of the show athletic greens if you haven't heard about athletic greens before you are seriously missing out it is a greens powder it's got the antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables it's also got prebiotics probiotics adaptogens superfoods it's got it all and for me I'm not even exaggerating, adding athletic greens into my routine is probably one of the most responsible, smart things that I have done as an adult because it is me finally investing in my body. Like I said, it's jam packed with a ton of necessary goodness, all of which I was seriously missing out on before. Like. I had no dedicated multivitamin routine. I was literally buying whatever gummy vitamins were on sale at my local CVS. And now I just feel so good starting my days with Athletic Greens, prioritizing my health and my well being. Of course, they have an awesome deal for the Hurdle audience. Get a year's supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs with your purchase. Head on over to athleticgreens.com hurdle. Again, that is athleticgreens.com hurdle to get yours today. No code necessary. Make sure you're following along with the show over at Hurdle Podcast on Instagram. I am over at Emily Abadi. There's also a secret Hurdlers Facebook group and a weekly Hurdle newsletter that I would love for you to get in your inbox. Links to get in on all of this action are in the show notes. Excuse me for getting a little sentimental, but thank you so much, so, so, so much again. For giving me your ears and being a part of this community. I am so excited for what's to come. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Hillary Allen. She's a runner, she's a cyclist, she has a new book out, she's an author called Out and Back. How are you doing, Hill? Yeah, I'm
0: doing good. Yeah, just, uh, you know, taking it by, you know, as as it comes. It's an interesting year, yeah, the last couple years, but.
1: Out and back. Congratulations. This is really exciting.
0: Yeah, I know. I actually, the last time that we spoke, actually the first time I met you, I don't think the idea had, had come about yet of me writing this book. So, It's really cool to talk to you about it now.
1: I know. It is really cool. So for context, Hillary and I met on a trip to Joshua Tree with the North Face. Unbelievable trip. This was, I want to say, was it summer 2018? I think it was
0: because we were – yeah, so Joshua Tree. I think it was spring Mm, um, because it wasn't unbearably hot yet. I just remember (laughs) we were camping and it was still really dry and there were like bees everywhere. and. bees. With it, there's like like buckets of water that people would put out so the bees would be attracted over
1: there, not to us. <laughs> oh, the sugar water, yeah, right? Yeah, Yes, yes. So we've known each other for a few years now. Kind of crazy how much has happened since we met. And I'm excited to fill in the hurdlers on what happened even before we met as well. Now, before we dive into your backstory, I'm curious about the title for your book, out and back. Talk to me about the why behind that.
0: Yeah, this is a good question. And I'm really glad you asked it because I actually hate out and backs, like on a run. I hate them. (laughs) Like they're my least favorite kind of run. I prefer loops. I prefer like a point to point, you know, a race or like, you know, someone picking you up, you know, after you finish this epic traverse or something like this. But an out and back, like on the same trail, I really – don't enjoy. So why would I name my book this? <laughs> so it has irony to me. It, there's a deeper meaning, and I and I like double meanings because when I, you first look at it, like out and back, I think, ew, I don't, I don't like this. But as I dive deeper into it, I start runs most of the time from my house or a trailhead, and even when you come back to the same place, even if it's at a you know an uh, an out and back or a loop, you come back with this with just new experiences. Mm. And you're coming back to the same place, but you take with you all of these this knowledge that you've gained. And so I wanted to name my book something that represented this. And from the journey that I took, that I kind of, I went out there and now I'm back, but I'm back with this whole new perspective on life. And yeah, I think that's what the book is about, kind of sharing what I learned along the way.
1: I totally resonate with your feelings on the out and back, by the way. So Mm -hmm. perfect, perfect name. I love it. And I mean, has so much to do also with your story of literally being kind of down and out and now being back. So before we – I feel like we're foreshadowing like this massive hurdle moment, which we certainly are. But before we even get to your accident from 2017, let's dial it back and talk a little bit about where you grew up and when you were growing up. Were you an active kid?
0: Yeah. So I'm a Colorado native My parents, they were both professors at Colorado State University. And so they worked a lot. But then when we had the summers off, um, where they could take extended time because they weren't teaching. And so they would, you know, take us, my sister and I in our camper van, and we would go camping and travel on these epic road trips around the US. And visit. I've visited almost every single 50 uh, of the 50 states. And I've visited countless national parks. And it was just an incredible way to grow up. So I I say that I grew up like outside in the dirt. I was definitely a tomboy, whether or not people like that term. It resonates with me. I was just very outdoorsy and active and and none of the typical kind of, you know, things that interested my sister, uh like if she was playing with like dolls and dress up and stuff like that. That never really interested me. I was always interested in bugs and like, you know, being outside, getting my hands dirty. Yeah, and and I think actually, <laughs> I think I learned how to walk on a trail. Yeah, like just a, like you know, kind of like in a campground or you know, like a crushed dirt path. That's like, I mean, that's like like I said, that's kind of when when how I grew up. I was my birthdays in August, and so you know, we were always we we're always out and about during that time of year. And I grew up just I think just with this curiosity and this just this excitement for life, like asking questions, whether that was with the physical world, you know, in exploration, like looking for animals or bugs. But science was also a huge part of my upbringing. I mentioned both of my parents were teachers at Colorado State University, um, but they're both in science. Like my mom is a parasitologist. So Microbiologist, so (laughs) basically studies parasites. (laughs) Foreshadowing to when I started running, the first thing my mother bought me was a life straw to filter water because she didn't want me to get Giardia. <laughs> and uh, then my father is a food science human nutritionist at uh, he's a professor doing research. So our you know our dinner conversations were just you know quite scientific in nature. What so- a
1: cool way to grow <laughs> up though like being surrounded by just like an overwhelming wealth of information and inquiry
0: Yeah and it really encouraged that in me. Even before I got into running, I was always an active kid. Like my father was a really big runner as well, and that was just kind of part of us. We were always active, but my parents viewed it as okay, like you need to, you know, be physically active and be healthy in that way, but, you know, you can play sports, but you won't get to play sports unless you do well in school. And so, it was always this balance. So, yeah, actually before I started running, I was pursuing a scientific career, actually, for – I was in a PhD program in neuroscience. And, like, that was just never the – that was never kind of – that was always the goal. Like, it was never an option for me to not go to school. Like, uh, (laughs) so, like – so, fast forward to, like, now when I'm now a professional runner for the North Face, it feels kind of weird. At first, like, making that decision, I kind of was afraid to tell my parents because – They're like, yeah, and what else are you doing? (laughs) 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 But yeah, I mean, I still do a, a bunch of other things, but like my life has just been totally rooted in, I think, curiosity. And the two ways that I explored that were through science. And that's something that I've pursued for the majority of my life, even more so than running and then sport, but just kind of like. First, it was in ball sports and like basically every single sport that I could try to like beat the boys. And then, yeah, and then it kind of I I played tennis in college and then it just kind of evolved from there.
1: Where was college?
0: Uh, it was in Iowa. Like I don't
1: know, actually. <laughs> Why do you say it like that? No shade on Iowa. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry. Actually, Iowa. It, it was great. I loved. I loved going to school I there. I love Iowa. Now that you
1: say it like that.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. But like, no, no offense to the to, to the state. Maybe a little bit. I don't. Iowans? Actually,
1: are they Iowans?
0: I think so. And yes. So
1: no offense to the Iowans.
0: No offense to the Iowans. You. They are some of the nicest people. Like in the Midwest. I really, really like I had made some great friends there. But Iowa is just is not for me. I'm definitely I, I was like <laughs> just to come back to Colorado in the mountains. I think it's just the lack of mountains. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I I went to a small liberal arts college. I had a tennis scholarship as well as an academic one. I got to pursue chemistry. That was my undergraduate degree. Uh, So I got to do undergraduate research. Like if I had glasses right now, I'd be pushing them up because I'm such a big nerd. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's kind of – and then, yeah, that was just kind of the – I think the spark for me was in college of where I kind of – I just started to get into this this world of of sports and be more curious about what I could pursue in the world of sports. I became a pretty I was a very competitive tennis player um and I was always looking for like the I don't know the next challenge and I spent countless hours practicing um trying to get better and I had this crazy record in college actually. So tennis for women they pay best out of three sets so two out of three sets so if you split sets so if you each win a set which is the best to the first to six games you have to play a third set and i had this ridiculous record in college that every time i went to a third set i always won Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, just because I outlasted these other girls and I could just – I would just run down every single ball and, like, I think they just got pissed off and frustrated at the end.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that endurance kicking in.
0: Yeah. And so I think that was the first time where I realized, like, hmm, okay, like, I think I have – I think I have some some extra something here. And um, it wasn't until after college that I kind of was able to, to discover exactly what that was.
1: Did you think about taking tennis any farther?
0: I did. But tennis is difficult because I love it so much. It's like a, it's an individual sport, but it's also just this strategy and there's, there's just so much beauty uh, to the game. But it's difficult because you have to have a court. You have to have another person to play, Uh, sometimes three other people. It can get rather expensive because racket clubs and even if you're, you know, outside of the public park, sometimes the courts aren't in good condition or you even have to pay to reserve court time there. And when I was in graduate school at the time, you know, the only times that I could play with other people, you know, no one wanted to play with me at five in the morning. (laughs) They wanted to play with me at like, you know, midday or like, you know, 5 p.m. after you get off of work. And it was it just became kind of too much of a puzzle to try to fit the time required to pursue it in a way that i wanted to huh. and i was actually in denver for graduate school university of colorado denver campus and a lot of the good competition was in boulder and so that's like a 45 minute drive and so you know Basically, it was just a math equation that would would always add up to like twenty five hours, and I only have twenty four hours in the day. So, and I needed to sleep at some point. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of insane, though. I mean, it, it kind of had a light bulb moment just now when you were talking about the difficulty of like integrating someone else into your sport. And i I've never thought about, and we're gonna talk about running, but I guess. I've always known that running is great because you can do it anytime, anywhere. You don't need a lot to get it done and all you need is you. But when you take a step Mm -hmm. back and you think about why some of us love it for that opportunity because all you need is you and you don't need to rely on anyone else and you can go out there and deal with your shit. And just be on your own. Of course, there's also the opportunity to like engage with other humans on the run. But wow, that makes me take a step back and really have a second of appreciation for this thing that we both share in common.
0: Mm -hmm. That's it's beautiful because I mean, even you know, go backwards in time to when we met. Like, we know we were in Joshua Tree, a place that I had had actually not been since I was a kid, right? But it's a cool way to explore and you could do it anywhere. Like I know that we were running on the road when you we were there, but then I know I had discovered some trails um, in Joshua Tree to run around. And, you know, it's it's beautiful because you can do it anywhere. And it's so simple. And that's actually what drew me to this sport. It wasn't necessarily that I loved running. Even as a kid, I didn't really love it. I did it because, like, my my father did it. He was, He's from Great Britain, and he was on the British national team for for running the marathon, he's 76 now. And he like, you know, oh my gosh, 55 years ago and he was like 20, he ran like a 228 marathon, something around there. So it was like, it was pretty stout for that time. And, you know, my sister was a great runner, so she loved it. And so she did it, but I didn't really love it. And I was just doing it because I wanted to stay in shape for tennis or these other things. Like I didn't see a point in running unless there was a ball to chase after. Yeah. And so then when I was in graduate school, I was like, well, what is this? Like I'm time crunched. I need some sort of an outlet. And I found this kind of running club that was half a mile from my house. And I showed up one morning. These ladies were – so one thing that drew me to it was it was just all women. And the second thing that drew me to it was that Well, obviously, it was close to my house. (laughs) And the the third thing was that it was at five, (laughs) like five in the morning. And that was perfect for me because I could actually run and then head into lab because I needed to be there by like 7.30 or 8 a.m. And so it was perfect. And I showed up and, you know, lo and behold, these ladies were like in the early 50s and had been on the Reebok team back in the 80s and were like Olympic trial marathoners and just badasses. And they really loved running and they had been running together and been training partners for like 30 years. And I just kind of started falling in love with running through their story and seeing how they kind of, you know, they just had their pair of shoes and they'd, you know, walk out, get out the door. They all lived within like half a mile of each other, these three ladies, these two women. And um, yeah, they're just like, you know, using running as like a means to catch up and, it just was beautiful. And then I was just like, okay, what is this? What is this running thing?
1: <laughs> I think it's beautiful too, because running is a universal language, right? Like mm-hmm. you see so many stellar athletes from all around the globe and they come together to run everywhere, even mm-hmm. over the pandemic, to be connected through sport despite being in different places. There's this universal acceptance and language that as runners we can communicate with you know you don't need a lot again to to lace up and get out there you just need a willingness to do so and that's pretty freaking awesome
0: i love that and it's because it is it and i think it's even though it's so simple it can feel so powerful and so I just fed my independence in 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 a really meaningful way, yeah. And it felt like a form of self care. I don't know. It was just, yeah. That was just kind of the beginning of me discovering the beauty of in the simplicity of movement.
1: And like you're in Denver, so I'm assuming that at this time you're already you're already starting to get onto the trails, right?
0: Actually, that didn't come until later, but yes. So. So Janie Day, she was this woman who – she was the leader of this running club. And so she was a marathoner, but then also – that was on the road. She also loved the trails. And so she was the first one that kind of introduced me to this concept of trail running as I was training for my first road marathon. And we used, like, every Sunday as just kind of a recovery run where we could go to the trails and just, like, kind of play and not worry about time or pace. So, yeah, it was kind of during that time in grad school that I would, you know – it started with once a week that I would go to the trails and then it quickly evolved from there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when you say it quickly evolved from there, talk to me about getting more acquainted with the trail. And I'm curious, like at first, did you feel a little uneasy about going out and doing something like that on your own? I mean, I feel like at least on the on the road, especially as someone talking uh, to you who lives in a major city, like when you're on the road – Typically, there are a lot of people around. If something happens, like you can navigate it. So I would assume that hand-in-hand hand with you getting into trail running also came a, a burst of some independence as well.
0: Yeah, and thankfully for me, I did have other people like some people there with me to kind of help pave the way. And as, also with my upbringing, like I actually feel more comfortable outside in nature than I do like in a bigger city. So sometimes, you know, when I was running in a city, I'd feel sometimes more uncomfortable than when I would, you know, run on a trail alone. But that didn't come until a bit later, until I was a bit more, you know, familiar with going out and actually running on the trails. Because before that point, I just had associated trails with hiking. And so it was a, it was a steep learning curve from there. Um, but thankfully I had kind of Janie and her friends to kind of pave the way. And uh, there's just something incredible about seeing someone who, I mean, who is doing this when she's, you know, like 50 something years old and she's not scared. And so, you know, she's doing it and she's showing me what to do and saying that I can do it. And I'm like, all right, well, like, let's do this. Like, I don't, all right, there's no reason why I I can't do this. Learning from Jeannie was just, it was the biggest gift. And, you know, she, she was not afraid. And she, you know, she was early 50s. And, you know, like most, you know, trying new things or trying new trails. And she was super encouraging to me, telling me and showing me that I could do it. Um, and it, like, it was so much fun for me because I felt like I had nothing to prove. There was no competition aspect to it. It was simply learning. And I was just trying to learn everything I could from her. And I think it's different, like later as I started to run more by myself and gain more confidence and meet other people like yeah, sometimes I think some of the little competition thing can get into it and, you know, people start racing on a trail. And I, I was just always like, not really drawn to that, which is ironic because, now I race like competitively, but um, still how I view running is just very much how Janie introduced me to it. It's a it's a time for exploration. It's a time to just get to play, let your mind wander. And like that simplicity, just because there's no expectation, it can bring so much freedom and creativity. And as I was getting into running um, in graduate school, it, I just became a better scientist. I became a better person. Um, I felt just this lightness of being, I felt, you know, just creative and and full of energy. And running was a huge kind of spark and motivation, probably in every other aspect of my life.
1: Yeah. Well, for you, as you got more and more into the sport, when did it shift from this thing that you did on Sundays and maybe a little bit more often as time went on to like, wow, yeah, I'm in graduate school and this stuff is all cool and everything, but maybe I should just do this running thing a lot more.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I tried, I'm a person that I think, uh, I do a lot. I put a lot on my plate. I like to say yes. I like to do a lot of things. And there can become a tipping point where it's too much. And I was definitely reaching that in graduate school. At the time in graduate school, I was working probably 70 hours a week. So this required me to come in on Saturdays. And my life was just basically like, you know, sleep, run, eat, graduate school things, study, like you know repeat. And you know I ha- I wasn't I didn't really have a social life except for the you know other graduate students in my in my cohort and, and my running friends, right? Like that was my social outlet to be able to go for a long run with them or just by myself. So I did my first marathon in 2012 and that was a road marathon. And I dabbled in like a other like a couple other road uh, things in 2012. But then it wasn't until 2013 that I ran my first trail race. And then 2013 was a really busy year for graduate school. I was kind of doing my some just big projects. And so it wasn't until 2014 that I had my first trail running season. And um, so my first trail running season, granted, like I'm training for my first ultras, like my 50 mile race and um, my first one. And this was all for fun. Like I had, I actually, I wanted to do the race just because I wanted an opportunity to do the distance. And I, I had run a 50 K and I was like, okay, I did that. It wasn't too super, super hard. Like, uh, maybe I can do a 50. And so all of this was for fun. Just out of literally, literally it wasn't super hard. <laughs> I meant like, I meant like I ran. <laughs> okay. So for context. I suck at roads. I did a, a road marathon and I wasn't satisfied with the time. I ha- I ran like a three, this is going to make me sound like a jerk, but like I ran a 315 marathon, my first one. And I was like, this is, this was, this was hard, but like, I want to try to break three hours. And so I trained and I did the kind of like a self-supported, unsanctioned, whatever. Janie was there like riding her bike around Washington Park because I did laps of, of this thing. And so I ran a 251 and I was like, this sucks. Like, I <laughs> don't want to do roads ever again. And yeah, so then then a trail runner was born. I was like, the trails are fun. I'm just going to do this. And so this was, like I said, 2000, end of 2012. So then by the time I was into 2014, like racing trails and like having fun, I was like, I my perception of like hard was different. So when I finished like a 50k, I didn't feel as wrecked as I felt after a road marathon. And I was like, "Hmm, okay, like there's something I can explore here, like put like push, go deeper." And so in 2014 when I was, you know, doing trails and kind of exploring that, I was getting more curious about how like long these how these longer distances would be. I don't know, taken in my body, like how I could handle them. Um, because yeah. like that feeling of going all out in a road marathon is just so different from trail running. And so in 2014, I really wanted to like do a bunch of races that just felt like that were fun and that I was just interested in doing. And ironically, this is, this is where I realized that it had some sort of potential in 2014. I actually, I ran my first 50 and on that 50 mile run, Not only uh, did I win; that was the first woman. I actually set a course record, and this was like a woman who Darcy uh, Pick you, and she's been in the sport for a while. She's a legend, and so when I like crossed the finish line, I was like, "Wait, are you serious?" Like, because there's multiple races. This was Bighorn Fifty. There was like five other races happening at the time, so I had no idea which you know how which people I was passing for which race. So when I crossed the finish line, I literally was like, I think you guys made a mistake. There's no way that I won. <laughs> <laughs> then after that, it was just kind of this, I started getting more confident and I started, you know, doing other races. And I think in 2014 I picked these races because they were interesting to me and they were fun. Like for instance, the speed goat 50K, like these pretty technical 50 kilometer, so about 31 mile races um, with a lot of elevation gain. So for instance, Speed Goat was at, in Utah. So it's Snowbird, a ski resort, but obviously in the summer. I did this race called Run the Rut, which was in Montana. So in, in Big Sky, Montana, right at Big Sky Ski Resort, but again in the summer. <laughs> and so you'd climb up these like big steep um, hills. And I, I love this aspect of trail running because I could hike because it was steep enough. You couldn't really run. <laughs> yeah. And I i don't know. I just felt this like freedom that like, you know, I was just going off of effort and feel because your pace didn't really matter. You just kind of had to go and see how it kind of turned out and after 2014 i kind of had played like run these different races and i ended up winning the us skyrunning series like this whole series of races because i had competed in some of these like races that had qualified for this series and literally it was like an accident i had no idea that i was like <laughs> actually competing in this series and that I won, <laughs> and <laughs> until obviously the last race of the season, and I'm just like, huh, okay, maybe there's something to this. And granted, this was the whole, this was all the while while I was working 60 to 70 hours a week in graduate school, and all of these races, like I mentioned, some of them you know are Big Sky, um, Montana, some of them are in Utah, others were in Arizona, some were in Colorado, so. This is, you know, usually a race would happen on a Saturday and I had to work in lab. So I would go to lab early on Friday and I would leave, you know, after I got my work done and then sometimes get in the car for 10 hours at a time to drive to the race from Colorado you know, and then to try to compete in the
1: weekend. Jeez. And that was going to be my question for you was like, were you driving here? Were you flying here? How are you funding, getting around and like indulging in this thing that you started to love so much?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I was – like grad students do not make that much money, um, and so it was definitely like stringing together just kind of the scraps. Like, but just going st- purely off of passion. Like, I would get in my car, and you know, I would go on these epic road trips. Like, I do like road trips. Is kind of like with my upbringing, but it was just because I loved it so much, and I was curious, and I wanted to see a new state. I wanted to, instead of experiencing it as in a national park, like hiking, like I did growing up, I wanted to experience it on foot running and it was a really cool way to almost rediscover the United States like these different places that I had been before but I had never had a chance to run in like in this in this certain area or yeah. experiencing it you know as an adult it was really freeing and i just loved it so much that literally that was just my life it was like you know on on a weekend where i had a race i would try to you know front load my my lab week so i would work like 10 hour days during the week you know and you're tapering so i was like you know trying to work more and then i would make it happen for the for the weekends and then you know when i was dead tired on monday um still try to you know string it together
1: and would you be traveling to these places solo or would you be bringing anyone along for the ride
0: Yeah, so um, it was a mix. So um, I was dating a guy at the time. And so he was really into running. And so we would go on a lot of these road trips together. And even when we didn't have a race, sometimes he would come to support me, I'd come to support him. But, you know, it was my friends who, who wanted to kind of go on a vacation. Like, Moab is um, so Moab, Utah is really close. Well, <laughs> close to Colorado, it's like a six-hour drive. So it's actually pretty easy to do that on the weekend. So I would go to you know places like that, or go to the San Juan Mountains in, in the other part of Colorado. Um, basically, the other like the western slope of Colorado for the weekend just to go running. So I'd go with my friends. I'd go with my boyfriend at the time. I just was falling in love with this lifestyle of you know being outside. And yeah, like that's, that's when I really began to think, especially when I had more success at running, like I want, I really wanted to know like what was, what I could do, what I could accomplish. Like, is this a chance that I should take on myself? Um, I mean, but these were huge questions to me because I had devoted my life to science. Like, so had my parents. And this was a career that I really wanted. Like, I wanted to be a professor. Um, I wanted to get my PhD and I wanted to pursue science. But, you know, the hours that you work in graduate school and how tough it can be, it can – it was draining and I was beginning to not love it anymore. And then, you know, the juxtaposition of this thing of running that I was just exploring. I mean, it's like cue the Disney music of like a whole new world. Like literally, that's like how I felt. (laughs) 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 Um, But I was just falling in love with this. And like the more success I had, it was kind of right around the time when, you know, sponsorships were being offered for people and I was getting calls from different companies and, It wasn't until in late 2014 that I got a call from the North Face. And after that, I was just kind of like, holy crap. Like they didn't even, they didn't even offer me money. Like it wasn't even that. It was literally a trial period to see like, okay, like, do you fit with the team? You know, can we like, let's see if this works. And then we can talk about like an actual like sponsorship. So it was like kind of an ambassadorship. And I was like, oh man, like I have, I have to say yes.
1: Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about two of my great sponsors. First up, Green Chef. Green Chef is the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company. Enjoy clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. Ingredients come pre-measured, which is a dream, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped, which means that you can spend less time stressing out and more time enjoying delicious home-cooked meals. Green Chef makes eating well, easy, and affordable with plans to fit every lifestyle. I'm not even gonna lie. I was eating out so much in the last few weeks because I just felt so inundated with work. I couldn't focus on coming up with the right things to prep in the evening, but then I did a hard stop and put in another Green Chef order. Oh my God, so much deliciousness straight to my door. I think my favorites were the creamy truffle and mushroom linguine and also the honey citrus glazed salmon. So, so good. Now they do have options, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, or again, just looking to eat healthier. There is a range of recipes to suit any diet or preference. Trust me, cooking, great way to de-stress, cannot stress how delicious these meals are. Head on over to greenchef.com/90hurdle and use code 90hurdle to get $90 off including free shipping. That is greenchef.com/90hurdle and use code 90hurdle to get $90 off including free shipping. Next up, I want to give some love to my friends at Baron Fig. Since its inception in 2013, Baron Fig has been dedicated to a mission to champion thinkers around the world through inspiration and imagination. They do this by creating tools for thinkers. Now, I know you're probably wondering, what on the world is a thinker? Well, here's the deal. If you have thoughts, (laughs) you're a thinker. What originally started out as a small project between designer and CEO Joey Caffone and his friends quickly turned into something more. With nearly 10,000 confidant notebooks sold in the first 30 days, Baron Fig's founders realized there was a lack of quality thinker products, as they call them, on the market. And since then, they have expanded their line of tools for thinkers to include guided journals, notebooks, writing instruments, bags, desk organizers, so much stuff. I use my confidence Journal every single morning when I wake up, taking the time to just unpack my thoughts in the pages and that's my opportunity to begin each day with a clear head and a grateful heart. Use the code hurdle20 at checkout at barrenfig.com and you'll receive 20% off your purchase of $50 or more. Also for every Confidant notebook sold, Baron Fig plants a tree with tens of thousands of trees planted and counting. Head on over to barrenfig.com. that's B-A-R-O-N-F-I-G.com and use the code hurdle20 at checkout to receive 20% off your purchase of $50 or more. And what made you want to say yes to the North Face versus, like, I'm sure other brands that were giving you a call? Also, I always wonder this, like, like rewind. I mean, I guess the internet's a thing in 2014, but I always wonder, like, how do these brands get your number? <laughs> <laughs> Like whenever anyone's like – and then the North Face called. I'm like, and like who gave your number to the North Face? But I'm assuming – the point of this question, as I'm like rambling here, is that I'm sure other brands came at you and gave you a ring and they had money behind them. So why did you choose the North Face?
0: Yeah. See, this is a great question. So first of all, I had no idea. I was like, how did this person get my number? So it was like an athlete (laughs) manager for North Face, but –
1: And you always have to like thank the – like someone slipped them your digits and you're like, thanks. Whoever that was, thanks.
0: Yes. And so actually for me, it was after one of the races, so Run the Rut, one of my favorite races in Montana. So two of the the guys who who race direct that, Mike Foote and Mike Wolf, and they were both North Face athletes at the time. And so when I did well at that race, they're just like, hmm, like you should look at this woman. And so they kind of gave um, Maeve Sloan at the time, she was the athlete manager for North Face. They gave her uh, my contact info and then it kind of took off from there. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, there were definitely other, there were definitely other companies, but honestly, like just the legacy of North Face, honestly, it was, it was because I grew up in the mountains of Colorado and I, I saw myself more than just a runner. I saw myself more of just as an athlete and the North Face is just the epitome of that. And they have so many iconic runners but just mountain athletes and just to be able to kind of like rub shoulders with that kind of company I was like oh man like this is where I see myself but it just I don't know, the ideal, like the pinnacle of uh, like what an athlete to me looks like. And yeah, I just, and some of my idols, Rory Bozio, Rob Carr, Stephanie Howe, like all of these athletes. I mean, not to mention the climbers like Cedar Wright, Conrad Inker, Jimmy Chin, like Alex Honnold. Uh, like I was like, wait, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love to hear it. I love to hear it. So yeah. you start to excel in this sport. You're doing this trial ambassadorship of sorts with the North Face. Do you graduate from graduate school?
0: Yeah. So uh, in 2015, I was actually grappling with all of these decisions because I wanted to take the sport to the next level. I wanted to see where I could go. And more and more, I was offered these international trips um, to travel and to race on the world stage. And that was kind of like the next step after having national level success. And so then I was forced to choose because, you know, you, you only have two weeks of vacation time for graduate school and it's usually right. around, you know, Christmas time. But, you know, like for these races, especially international races, like these big races were during the summer and I had to start making decisions of, OK, well, do I want to do I like how can I do both? And the answer to me became just uh, like more clear that I couldn't, that I had to choose. And my heart was being more pulled to the running and seeing, you know, basically taking a chance on me, taking a chance to see if I could actually, you know, do something that was out of the norm. I had been in school for like the like 20 years, like forever. I, I was done. you know I was like <laughs> okay I'll, so I made the decision to get my master's degree and I was like, I can still do a lot with that. In fact, I so when I made that decision, this was in 2015, it was uh, during the time when I raced my first international race over in France. Uh, it's the Mont Blanc 80k. it's a pretty tough 50 mile race and I ended up placing third. And usually Americans don't do very well at uh, some European races just because of the elevation gain is like super steep and technical. It's just different, especially for their first like debut race. And after that, I was like, all right, Hillary, you have to take a chance on this. And then when I came back, my my advisor was not pleased with me that I had like, you know, taken a week off. And so I basically made arrangements and defended my thesis and graduated my master's. And then I started balancing running, trying to see if I could gain sponsorships and get paid. And then I also started teaching at a small college on the side. Yeah, and I was just kind of, you know, just balancing the best of, the best of both worlds. The best of both worlds.
1: I mean, that's <laughs> insane. The third place is absolutely insane. And I would imagine at the time, like, just to be in this position where – all of a sudden you are traveling internationally to do what you love. And what a pinch me moment to be like, yeah, I'm in France. I'm here just to like do some running and then I'll go back home and I'll teach some courses and then I'll come back and I'll do some more running.
0: I know. It's, seriously. I was like, is this is this real? Like, is this, is this okay? And like, <laughs> honestly, like I thought – I literally told myself, Hillary, like give it a year. Like because I didn't think that it was going to, you know – I, I thought I was just giving myself a break and then I'd kind of figure out the next step to do if I wanted to continue with grad school or you know, do something else. And so I thought of it as a pause. And now like fast forward, you know, six years later. Yeah. Um, but absolutely it was definitely it was definitely a pinch me moment.
1: So bring me into Norway. Because I want to get to this part in your story. I mean, obviously, you start to see a massive success. You are placing all around the globe in all of these super technical races. Mm-hmm. But in 2017, you go to one particular race that literally changes your life forever. Talk me through what the race is, how you got there, and how the day started out. So,
0: yeah, like you said, I... Quickly, my life was, you know, kind of revolved around this. I would go back home in Boulder and I would teach. And then every summer, I would pack up my bags and I would move to Europe and do these, you know, super technical races. And for me, my style of running was just drawn to the technical style of races that most likely happen in Europe. Um, And so I was doing that from, you know, May until August every year. And it was on this World Series, the Skyrunner World Series circuit, which is, it's just some of the most technical races that you can imagine. It's like, so 50 kilometer races, like 31 miles all the way up to, you know, 100K, so a a little over 60 miles. And they would gain anywhere from like, you know, 12,000 feet to like 20,000 feet.
1: (laughs) That is just insane.
0: And so one of these races happened in Norway. And I would kind of choose these races because they were – happened in super interesting parts of the world that I'd never been to. And so now I was just exploring kind of the map of, you know, like what was possible to explore on your own two feet – And this one race, it happened in Tromsø, Norway. So it's super far up, like in the Arctic Circle in Norway. And it was iconic. It was this this race. It's called the Humparokken Sky Race. (laughs) And the running in Norway is not really running. It's like just like scrambling and like over granite. And it's just really technical running. You can't really run that fast. You have to be very skilled and kind of pay attention. But this is exactly the type of running that I love and i practice it a lot and so i was kind of on this race it's a it was about a you know 35 mile course and um, at the halfway point you cross over this ridge it's called Humper and ridge and it's just this iconic granite ridgeline where you it's kind of third class so you can you basically have to have 3 Points of contact. So I use like a hand and like your two feet. So you're kind of not running, but you're moving fast, like hiking, and then you can have a hand down to like stabilize yourself. It's really fun because you're like interacting with the terrain. And I remember at this point, I was actually winning the World Skyrunning Series. I was ranked number one in the world at this discipline. And this race in in Norway was kind of just like a bonus lab. And. At the halfway point, as I, as I ran on this ridge, I remember seeing some photographer friends of mine cresting this peak and about to turn around a corner. And the next thing I knew, I was in the air. And I don't even remember a moment of me hitting a rock or slipping or like, you know, that moment when you trip and you're like, oh crap, like you're going to catch yourself. That never happened. And it was just instantaneously. And I was literally my hurt the horizon was upside down and I was like literally in my head I was like hmm, the sky is not supposed to be there and right. um yeah I I would like the world slowed down I almost felt like I was watching myself fall and I had just this strange logical epiphany that I was like Hillary this is it you're falling you're dying. Like, you need to brace yourself for impact and just try to relax. Like, this is happening. And that was kind of on repeat every time I kind of made impact with the ridge line, which I fell off of. And in total, I fell 150 feet and somehow survived.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that happened. Yeah. So you fall and you break 14 bones. And you, of course, end up in a hospital after getting airlifted. Talk to me about Mm -hmm. your first memory when you kind of come back into your body.
0: Yeah. So honestly, the the rescue operation was kind of a blur. I do remember waking – I passed out somewhere along the way down after the fall and then once I woke up, I was just in pain and kind of the world was pulsing in and out. As be- That's as best as I can describe it. And it was just more blurs of images. I still just remember the fear and thinking that I was still dying. But I remember the first part of me actually coming into my body was after they hoisted me up into the helicopter. And I kind of looked at the the doctor who was there and I started crying because I was like, am I going to be Okay and he gave this like a you know we're going to take you to the hospital like don't worry like we'll you'll like he couldn't you know really answer the question but um and then the second moment um was when my mom came so i was in the hospital in norway you know they had cleaned me up um but this wasn't until like 2 days after the accident i was like on painkillers and still really groggy not really knowing what had happened people had come in and out of my room but I really didn't know I like they were talking about an accident and I was like what accident like what happened like I still didn't know what had happened to me and mm. it, it wasn't until two days later that my mom came you know she flew in and at that moment I realized was like oh my gosh like I'm the one that fell like all these people are here for me and that's kind of when I was like I had, you know, I was in my body, I knew I was super injured, like obviously I hadn't moved in two days, but like I was like looking at like my, my arms which were broken, one of which was externally fixated to so had these rods poking out of it. And, you know, looking at my lacerations and on my legs are completely covered up. And it was at that moment that I, I just felt this like sinking and this sadness, because I finally realized like what had happened and the gravity of the situation.
1: Yeah, looking back on it now, I remember watching a couple of those videos that you posted in the days after that accident over on social media. I mean, for you, looking back on them now, it's literally just you crying to the camera. And in one of them, like completely void of emotion. The second one, I feel like a couple of days later, really realizing what's going on. When you watch those videos now, what does that bring forward for you?
0: Sometimes I watch them and I just cry. It's, I just remember it all too vividly. And I just remember me, you know, I do, I do remember that matter of fact video where I had like, you know, tubes coming out of me everywhere. And I was just kind of like, I think it, I was just like in disbelief, like I was in shock. Like look, you know, there was like a, a video where I could see myself, and I was just like, "Oh my god!" Like, is this really me? And I just remember that yeah. disbelief and that, that sadness. I remember the fear, um, and you know, some would think is like, "Why did she post these extremely intimate moments on on you know social media?" And and for me, it was this. This, uh, this kind of contract that I had written with myself, I I told myself that I was going to be honest with this process because too many times I feel like I've seen people shy away from hard moments. Too many times I've seen myself shy away from hard moments and, you know, retreat into the darkness and to this dark space where no one can see me, no one can see my vulnerability or weakness. But I realized that I wasn't going to do myself any favors by doing that. And I I wanted to use it as an opportunity to be honest with myself and the feelings that I was feeling, how much fear, how much sadness, how much anger I had. And in hopes that with that honesty it would encourage that in other people and, you know, to encourage others that were strong enough to be there with me in that. Hopefully that it would encourage and I could uncover that strength within myself to, you know, be with myself when I felt that you know, sad and and wrecked and just hopeless.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so I'm, you know, they're still up on my social media and, and, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, people still comment on it. So it brings me back there. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of those moments, even though they're, they're very painful to relive because, you know, it's almost just like, you know, ripping a scar open again.
1: I'm with you. I co-sign this idea of vulnerability in front of others, uh, sometimes in a self-serving way with respect to this idea. And Ashley Wilking is a a trainer who I've had on the show before. And she said something I'll never forget that just be careful that the sword that you use to save others isn't the one that you fall on, right? But sometimes for me, When I, you know, even something as simple as like lace up in the morning and I put my phone down and I record myself like tying my shoes, there are so many days where the last thing that I want to do is look at myself in the eye and show up on camera and I don't feel good, I'm not happy, I'm dealing with some shit. But doing that and putting myself out there, it is a reminder to me that I can show up for me. And maybe by showing up for me and showing up on social, I'll encourage the other person who doesn't think that they can show up at all that day to show up at least for them and kind of take it as the day comes from there.
0: Oh my gosh. You like literally, that is sometimes what got me up in the in in the morning. Um, you know, it was it was these moments where I just felt helpless and like it was the only thing that I could do was to show up for me. Like you said, like for me sometimes it was as simple as like when I couldn't move, you know, I was on a scooter because I'd broken both arms and my foot and I had surgery on my foot and both arms, so like I was on this scooter contraption thing and sometimes the only thing that I could do in the morning was show up to the coffee shop, my favorite coffee shop. I'd like roll down the street And go there and I'd, you know, greet these, you know, baristas that knew me by name by now. And that was sometimes the only thing that I could do. And I I told myself, okay, but if that's the one thing you can do, then maybe... You know, maybe that'll encourage other people or it'll, you know, encourage me to do something else that
1: day, like for myself. So how do you go from a place where doctors in Norway telling you, telling your mother that you may never be able to walk or run again to being on the scooter to then not only walking, but running again? I'm sure obviously it doesn't happen in a concise two sentence (laughs) (laughs) explanation.
0: No, but it's actually, it's really hard. It's really hard to describe that. That process. I mean, that's like part of the reason why I wrote the book was just to kind of document that process, not really the physical recovery, but more so the mentally, mental recovery that I had to kind of do and the work that I had to put in. But it was really a slow burn. And writing for me was such a cathartic process uh, throughout it all. It was a place where I could be honest, where I could be completely raw. nothing would judge me and I could write down exactly how I was feeling that day and it was a, it was a thing that continually encouraged me to show up and to keep putting the work in. And something that I visualized early on in my recovery was uh, me building this brick house and that each day represented a single brick in the foundation. And even though I didn't know like the house what it would look like or what I was actually building, I, I knew that if I put down a brick each day, that that would make the foundation stronger. And so then I could make it anything I wanted to in the end. And and the other piece of that was that every time it was like a brick, you know, and it was imperfect and like cut and chipped and, you know, it, was like, it felt like a crap day, but it didn't matter. I would still do what I could and I would like lay that brick down, even if it was imperfect. Uh, and I just had this idea in my mind that I was creating something bigger. And you But know-
1: how powerful is, like, visualization, mm-hmm. right? Like, that was what you chose to think about on the good days and the bad mm-hmm. days, that every single day was a brick to build the foundation. I mean, I would assume especially being someone who is an endurance athlete. There have been so many times in your professional career that you were just trying to get through the next step, the next mile. And in that process as well, You're thinking about building a completely different house in a completely different way. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And honestly, like visualization is so powerful. I think it kind of goes hand in hand with um, just like positive self-talk because if you're manifesting, and I don't even know if I like that word, but like you're creating or like you're investing in this bigger picture of you, like even though you maybe aren't happy with where you are at today, that doesn't mean that the work you're doing today won't create something different or new or like, I don't want to use the word better because that's some sort of judgment, but just something that you want to work towards. And so, yeah, visualization for me is quite powerful. I'm a, I'm a visual person. I mean, that's like part of the reason why I love trail running and being outside. Um, but it also just helped me manifest those positive thoughts.
1: We just wrapped about visualization, but also you mentioned the word positive thoughts during some of those really dark days. I would imagine that it was quite hard to have positive thoughts. And I'm sure, I know, a lot of people listening to this can certainly relate to that hurdle, to that struggle of being in a place where positivity almost doesn't feel like an option because shit's bleak. So for you, how did you stay positive and find light when it did feel so bleak when you were on the scooter hanging out with the baristas? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and to say this, it's like, I'm not an expert. And this is just to be, to demonstrate that it takes practice, continual practice. And even though I've had – I should be an expert. Like, I had to do this, you know, every day for – you know years um yeah. to, to find the motivation to keep going through you know recurring injuries or multiple injuries in this crazy recovery uh, this loss of self identity and not feeling like myself anymore i had to practice this positive mental thinking every day and i'm still not perfect at it and i still have days where i have like horrible negative thoughts
1: can i ask you about those for a second yeah like, did they ever get like really bad Oh
0: my gosh! Uh, yeah. Did bad. you ever
1: think about getting to a point where you were like, I don't want to be here anymore?
0: Uh, many times, and you know that was actually something really scary that I, that I had to, I had to admit that that was what I was feeling, and um, it was really hard for people that I loved to hear that, and some people couldn't even hear it because, you know, and especially through this accident, you know, everyone was like, oh, you you should feel so grateful that you're alive. And I didn't. I felt Mm -hmm. like I had, I wish the accident would have killed me because it felt easier than dealing with the day, the daily struggle.
1: How interesting and beautiful, though, that you were in a place that you vocalized that to other people because Mm -hmm. a lot of people going through, and I won't say similar because totally unique and individual experience that you went through, but. A lot of individuals that are dealing with thoughts of perhaps self-harm or whatnot don't feel comfortable opening up to other people or feel ashamed and embarrassed, and so they don't. But for you to be in a place where you were like, I need to talk to someone about this, I think that's really good on you.
0: Well, thank you. And this is this is going to tie into kind of everything I was going to say regarding the positivity piece, which you think, okay, like how, how do these things relate? But- For me, I couldn't always talk to people. I am a very independent and like reserved person. And so I don't trust that easily. So for me to speak to this was a huge deal. But how I started was being honest with myself and writing those thoughts down in a journal, writing them down and getting them out there so they didn't consume me. So I think that was the first step. Um, and this is the first step that I always take when I want to be positive is that I embrace the negative feelings because unless I can actually admit and be honest with myself and know that I'm struggling, like then I can't, I can't create change and I can't be positive because if I'm just lying to myself and I'm like, I'm fine, this is all good. I'm just grateful to be here. Like, woohoo, like that's a lie. Like, and I couldn't do that. And, yeah. and for me, first of all, for me, like honesty with me, if I, if I put that vibe out there, then I felt like I was lying to myself. And that I think is dangerous because then it creates this unsafe space, even within myself, to not allow room for the negative feelings. Mm-hmm. So for me, in order to be positive, I had to write out those negative thoughts. I had to experience them. I had to lean into them. It was icky. I don't like it. And then I could put words to them and speak to the people that were closest to me. And then the beautiful thing is, is that once I put them out there, they were gone. And it's kind of like this release. And then I could, you know, then be like, okay, well, I don't, the, those are out there. I feel this way. I can't change it at the moment. And what else do I have? And the answer to what else do I have was always hope. And then that's where the positivity would come in.
1: Yeah. And recognizing in those moments of vulnerability and honesty, the difference between fact and feeling and understanding, okay, I have hope. I Mm -hmm. have X. I have Things that I need to move forward, even though it feels like I am so tripping on my ass every time I'm approaching this hurdle. Like, at least I know that beyond the frustration, there's something on the other side. I just have to be willing to get myself there.
0: Yeah. And I love this analogy of the hurdle because I think about it as like, I was not, I'm a trail runner, but still, like, I'm not good at hurdles. (laughs) (laughs) Girl, you're quite good at hurdles.
1: You are, you are. But the thing is, is that this
0: analogy for the hurdles, it's because it's like people think, oh, there's a hurdle, you like jump over it. But uh-uh. Sometimes you have to freaking crawl, you have to jungle gym your way over that hurdle. But as long as you're trying and like problem solving a way to get over it, you'll get there. And I love that analogy.
1: Ah, oh, thanks, man. I was <laughs> I was waiting three and a half years ago for this moment when someone like you just really reinforced where I, where I was going
0: with it. <laughs> uh, seriously, like, I get it. I literally, it's, it's, like, every time, like, I really like the analogy because it's just, it's perfect. And yeah, also with trail running, it's like,
1: Dude, but so many hurdles in trail running. Are you kidding? Like boulder, rock. You're talking about like quote unquote running, but you have like a hand on the ground. Like hurdles every <laughs> single step when it comes to your sport. They just might not have like two legs and a bar that goes across the top. <laughs>
0: Sometimes I wish that they were that simple. But yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, so talk to us about where you are now. Uh, how the recovery has been? Are you back to racing? What's going on with Hillary? Yeah.
0: So. The crazy thing is, is that obviously the accent changed my life. It changed how I trained. And I mean, so yes, I'm back to, I'm back to racing. I'm back to elite level racing, which is crazy. Like I never thought in a million years that this would happen, but I held on to hope and I held on to this belief that my best athletic days were ahead of me. And that is like a mantra that got me through. And, um, I think it's amazing. It's it's timeless because no matter like no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter if you try a new sport, like there's always something to aspire to. And the accident was just a way for me to fall in love with running again, and fall in love with making new goals, fall in love with making myself a better version. Of, of myself learning about me learning about what makes me happy learning how to rest learning how to have a balanced life and it was it still is kind of a journey I've had injuries since then and it doesn't get easier to deal with any kind of hurdle that life throws your way but I will say that I feel more in tune with what I need during those moments and I have now more resources to be able to reach out to and to, you know, I think about like a tool belt. It's like, okay, I have these different recovery tools. And so now I know which one to use when I'm feeling this way or when I'm experiencing this. Um, and so I just feel, I just feel more balanced and I feel more just in tune with what I need. And I, you said this earlier in the podcast, but I, the feeling of like, I got you, like I say this to myself, it's like, okay, if something comes at me, whether it's with running or just in life in general. I mean, you know, I think the past couple of years have been really hard on a lot of people. And to know that I have, like, I got you. I say this to myself, no matter what life throws at me, it's a really peaceful place to be. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But it just, mm-hmm. it just, yeah, I just think um, the accident and recovery is, is a way It was a way for me to discover that, that that strength and the ability to kind of rely on myself.
1: For someone who struggles with that I got you mentality, for someone who struggles showing up for themselves, what advice do you have for them?
0: Yeah, so I just encourage honesty. For me, I think it's so important to be honest with where you're at. If you don't feel like showing up that day, okay, like own it, be honest with yourself in that moment. And I think what you'll learn is that as soon as you allow room for, for acceptance of that, you know, almost unacceptable emotion or peace, it actually, it disappears. And then you, it doesn't hold weight. It's almost freeing. And then it allows room for you to actually, you know, show up for yourself. And then you know, as soon as you admit to yourself like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this today, then you actually might end up doing something because you've allowed room for that like negative emotion or just to be honest. And I think there's a lot of power in that.
1: And I think sometimes when you admit to yourself like, oh, I don't feel like doing this, then that opens the door to like do something different. Then you do that other thing and you realize that it is within your power to show up maybe in a way that you didn't anticipate. So the next time that you're confronted with this scenario where you're like, oh, I just don't know if I can do it, in your gut and in the back of your head, you're like, no, but I can. Like, I can do this. I did this the last time. I just need to get over this initial moment and then Mm -hmm. we'll conquer from there, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think – it's exactly that. I mean, we're so complex, but I think there's a lot of power in in that honesty and, like I said, creating space because then, yeah, then you can pull on these other instances in your life where you're like, oh, well, I did this hard thing and I'm still okay and I, you know, figured a way through it and it just – it creates like this almost waterfall and this like positive feedback and – We love
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> we love that. So what excites you right now?
0: Oh man, there is a lot of things actually. Um so definitely the book, it's kind of crazy to have this this story out there and like I said it's it's less of a recovery story and more of just a human resilience story. Yeah. I describe it as like an invitation for people to use challenges as a way to learn and to become better people. So I'm definitely excited about that. Excited every time I see someone new with this, you know, personal story of mine. <laughs> but I'm excited also just for community. I know it's been really tough um the past, you know, year and a half with the with the pandemic, but just different opportunities that I think instead of viewing it as a door being closed, that many doors are opened and there's a lot of collaborations and new community that has been like opened up through these challenges or these kind of like unprecedented times yeah I'm excited for exploration in a different way whether that's you know exploring local trails at home or near my home uh and then you know return to to racing I'm certainly excited for racing but that's like to me that's not even the even on the forefront just because I think there's so many other things to explore first
1: (laughs) When uh, someone goes to your Instagram page, they see this endurance athlete, a runner, a cyclist, an author, a science nerd, all of these things. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, <laughs> so yeah, because I think we get like caught up, in, and I certainly do, of all of these things, like how do you define yourself? I define things by what I do, right? But I think when I look in the mirror, I wish I I can send you this photo. Um I haven't posted it yet, but I will. It's a photo <laughs> photo of little Hillary on career day in kindergarten and I'm holding a bug net and a of <laughs> my bug collection of like butterflies, like beetles, spiders, like all this shit. <laughs> and I'm there like, and I'm so excited. I'm wearing a lab coat and I have put bug stickers all over it. Hell yeah, you did. When I look in the mirror. Yeah. When I look in the mirror, I seriously see that. Like I see this, this little girl who's still has this curiosity for life. And I think my favorite phrase is a little kid. My favorite question was why? And that is still who I am today.
1: Right now, Hillary, you have an opportunity to offer one piece of advice to the Hillary who is just coming back into her body. She's in Norway. She's like, what the hell is going on? She's coming to terms with what's gone on and she feels completely hopeless. You right now can tell her one thing. What do you tell her?
0: I would say don't give up on what you love.
1: <laughs> I love it. I'm so grateful for your story. I loved hurdling with you. How did the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? Give me all the details.
0: Yes. Uh, so thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's hillygoat underscore climbs. Uh, so that's my nickname. <laughs> um, and then there's pretty much everything there. And then also my website. It's hilaryallen.com. And So there's info for my book, for running coaching or, you know, just anything, virtual book tour stuff. I encourage you to sign up for my email list because I actually have created a little Hilly Goat book club. So if you buy my book, you can, you know, take the, I've created this little PDF thing so you can, you know, go through these challenges and like, it's just really fun. So yeah, that's that's pretty much (laughs) it.
1: (laughs) You're about to be inundated with run coach requests. (laughs) from the hurdle community. So I hope you got your spreadsheets oh, here we go. on lock. I do. <laughs> I am over at hurdle podcast and at Emily Abadi, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.